You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Hey, hey, welcome back, my Freedom Pact family. Today on the show, we are joined by the best-selling author of The Talent Code, one of my all-time favorite books into personal development and high performance. It is Daniel Coyle. The Talent Code that Dan originally authored has been on my bookshelf for years. I put it down as one of the best individual books into high performance that I have ever read. When I first found out that Daniel Coyle had released another book, but this time, not into individuals, but into high-performing teams like Pixar, the Navy SEAL Team 6, the San Antonio Spurs, Zappos, and many more. When the opportunity came, we just simply had to get Dan on the show. So as well as being the New York Times best-selling author of The Talent Code, The Little Book of Talent, The Secret Race, Hardball, A Season in Projects, and other books, Dan was the winner of the 2012 William Hill Sports Book of the Year Prize. Dan is also a contributing editor for Outside Magazine and works as a special advisor to the Cleveland Indians. In this fascinating conversation that I sat down to have with Dan, we look at what makes a team a high-performing team. We look at culture within we look at how they communicate. We look at the beliefs. We look at different tactics that they have. This is truly fascinating. You would be so amazed at some of the stories which you will hear in today's podcast. This book that Dan has released is called The Culture Code. Seth Godin described this book as an urgent read. I won't go on any further, guys. I'm so excited to bring you this episode today. Without any further ado, Daniel Coyle, welcome to the Freedom Pact. It's good to be here, Joe. Thanks for having me. Amazing. So, Dan, I have been familiar with your work for a long time. I know, speaking to our audience, that they, my guess is, will know you from the smash it book, The Talent Code. This book is all over the the non-fiction books which we see on you know all over our Instagram. It's been mentioned on our podcast as some of the recommendations. I felt like with the talent code that the case in which you made with that book was you made this case of myth busting essentially so many different ideas surrounding talent. But what I think I was amazed with at the time was just how deeply that you took that work. You went really deep with it. You went neuroscience deep, which, Mm. you know, I love personally. 
you really took it to a, a real impressive level. So the Culture Code come out uh, a couple of years back now. So when I picked the work up, I will admit to you that I was, I think I was just a bit apprehensive going mm. into it because I, I I read the talent code and I thought to myself, I think it would be difficult for, for, for a writer to be able to reach that same level of impact and then to provoke the same amount of thoughts to really be able to get under the skin, the action ability. But man, oh man, I was wrong. <laughs> I thought I thought the book was spectacular. So let's start there. What was the conversation that you wanted to start round this time with the Culture Code, Daniel? Yeah, with you know, with with, with talent, the the book was mostly about how how skill grows in individuals. And while I was reporting that, and I, I take a very far too long to write each book it takes you know there were i think you know shoot almost nine years between the two books um the uh, the research for that book kind of took me into certain rooms uh and and it really brought forth the next mystery like every book is centered on a mystery the talent code was centered on why do individuals get really really good certain people around us we all know them they get really really good how does that happen let's x-ray that what is really happening and then the research for that book got me into these rooms that, and the rooms just felt different. And it made me realize, you know, there's something about certain groups in our lives. You walk into a certain bakery, you walk into a certain school, you walk into a certain locker room or a certain sports team or a certain family and things feel different there. And it feels like magic and we love that feeling and it's very powerful. It's sort of like when groups add up to more than the sum of their parts. And that mystery is what drove me into the into the culture code. You know, if talent code is individuals, and this is like, what's that magical group thing that is that is so powerful? And and it's like when you ask people to reflect on on those moments where they were in a really good group, they just start to smile because it's it's sort of a peak moment of life. We've all had it, right? Maybe it was a, a sports team, or maybe it was theater, or maybe it was family, or maybe it was our job at some point or other. And we know what the opposite of that is, right? We know what bad culture is. So the idea of exploring that mystery was was interesting enough for me to spend, you know, six years doing it. Yeah, and I, and I love this idea because the first time in which I ever sort of encountered this concept of great culture was through Stephen Covey's work in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I felt like he gave this overarching concept of this idea of synergy but the problem I had with that work is that it didn't really give a, a how-to. It just sort of talked about, you know, what it what it feels like. You know, whereas I feel as if you've really gone a step deeper now and you you man, you you know, you've given the, the how-to, you've given very it's a very actionable book. But just looking at, at the research for this, I mean, you must have had the most fun in your entire life, I mean, researching books for this book in particular. The research process looked amazing. It was so much fun that I almost didn't ever finish the book because it's <laughs> opportunity to say, oh, I think I'll go spend time with, you know, you know Pixar with uh, Navy SEALs Team 6. And um, one thing leads to another. And the unexpected piece of that that I um, – beyond just the sort of, you know, looky-loo idea of getting to observe these people at, at perform and, and get to know them a little bit was how keen they were to learn from each other. Um, there were a few places that I visited. The San Antonio Spurs were one. When I first approached them, they had no interest in it. 
because they said, you know, one thing that makes our culture great is that we don't brag about it. Um, we don't appear in books and articles about culture because we feel like that just sends the wrong signal. And we're humble, and all these cultures are humble. Um, but what ultimately got me in that door was presenting them with the idea that, hey, here's an opportunity to learn. Um, here's an opportunity for you to get for the Spurs and other cultures to exchange ideas and get better. And uh, and sort of that was unexpected and kind of fun and was yet another reason why it was sort of a hard thing to kind of <laughs> tie up this book in a bow. Um, one of the fun things has been that those conversations have, have continued and um, the bridges between these organizations have continued to be built. And I've, I've, there's, there's so many more sort of ideas that have come out in the months, in this couple of years since the book has come out that um, I'm just now working on the, the sort of a follow-up called a culture playbook that'll be more focused on the plays, on the tips, on the on the kind of actionable ideas that you know we can we can steal from other cultures. So one thing in which I know particular that I find with your work anyway is that it's you know having read the the, the culture code now and the talent code, and I read say roughly one to two books per week. I'm a complete reading fanatic. Mm-hmm. The one thing in which I notice is that your work in particular, and I don't know why this this is one of my questions to you, is I not I can't quite put my finger on why your work resonates so well uh, with the audience. But one thing I know for sure is that it does. I mean, I looked on Goodreads a couple of days ago. I mean, it's got a four. The Culture Code has a four point three three rating with almost ten thousand with almost ten thousand ratings which is just an insane score. So why is it that you think that your writing, it resonates so well? Do you have any idea? I don't, I don't. I mean, it, I, I, I try to, like any like any craft, like any skill, I think you get better at it. And if you pay attention to the masters, um, I've, I've certainly learned at the feet of a lot of really good editors and, and writers over the years. And, and ultimately, I think it has to do with a couple of things. Number one, understanding where the audience is, what questions are burning in their mind, what mysteries are there. Um, I guess a few things. First, being honest about the mystery that attracts you. Um, not writing a book just to write a book, but to really get into a genuine mystery. What the hell is going on in these places? What the hell is going on with these people? What are the signals being sent? It's not magic, right? So it's a thing. Um, and being honest about your and enthusiastic about that, about exploring that mystery. That to me is is the ultimate kind of sugar to uh to be able to to find a big fat mystery to explore um and the second thing that has taken me longer to learn is to really try to understand what people are struggling with um everyone is in a is you know for the in the culture area everybody's in a group and i've been there um you know when there's not good chemistry when people aren't communicating when people get in their silos when you know there's there's not good leadership or not good teammate behavior um and so you know, really trying to understand where people are at. And I guess the third element I would say is getting good at telling stories. I mean, it, 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 stories are the strongest drug ever invented. The most powerful thing on earth is a story. And, and understanding how to link um, stories, how to use stories to illustrate concepts that, that, that bring them to life. Um, and, and that means, um, you know, unfolding, you know, these sort of really interesting things in a way that people grab onto them. And that's just that, that all of this stuff is, it's not magic. I mean, all this stuff is sort of learned, um, 
And that's the nice thing about being a writer. All the examples for doing something well are out there. You can just do what you do and read voraciously and figure out exactly how people do it. Mm. I love the theme of stories. And this is definitely something which I know for a fact that you do extremely well. When I was trying to get an answer to that question myself, I found one story in particular which I loved. So tell me, Daniel, how does one man's quest to be the shortstop for the St. Louis Cardinals end with a deep dive into a comprehensive study into culture? Yeah, I guess, I, you know, that, that'd be me. I, I grew up in Alaska just absolutely determined that I would play in the major leagues, not really understanding that no one from Alaska, which of course is about the same latitude as Wales, about the same latitude as Edinburgh, actually, um, has ever grown up to play in the major league baseball uh, league. So, um, I kind of reached this fork in the road uh, where I, I, I couldn't be the best, so I decided to sort of study the best um, and figure out what, what makes them tick. So that idea um, really is what you know propelled my interest in this area. And I guess on a deeper level, I, I grew up with a couple of brothers. We always competed in a lot of things, um, and I, or at a very early age, got really interested in competition. <laughs> how, do I, how do I beat my two brothers at everything? Um, and they're, of course, equally interested in beating me at everything. So it, it was a bit of a, uh, a ton of interest in that sort of, that sort of understanding how to compete at different things, whether that's at school or sports. So that interest in kind of, and that, I guess, frustrated desire to compete got channeled into this, this question of, hey, what makes great performers? What makes them tick? What, what are they actually doing? You know, when you see um, a Leo Messi uh, you know, when, when you see a Tiger Woods, when you see a Michael Jordan, and, or, or when you see a Beyonce, um, there's a temptation just to put them in another category and say, oh, they're just magical people. Um, but they're not. There's processes that are happening in their, in their bodies, in their brains, um, in their groups that are not magic, that, they, that are, can be tapped into, understood, and, and used. Not that everybody can become a Beyonce or a Tiger Woods, but everybody can get better along the same pathway. Amazing, amazing. So if we start to delve in now to this concept of culture. So what I love is that you've broken it down so simply and you've come up with these three major signals that are involved in developing culture. So could you just talk about that? Yeah, and sort of, I guess the, the visual here, if we can start with a visual, is sort of if you picture... You know, actually, it's about this time of year in Europe. You have these wonderful flocks of starlings that appear in something called murmurations, and it's these very connected flocks that fly in this this super uh, beautiful uh, unity. They make turns all at once, and they 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 flow around the landscape just like they're a giant amoeba. It's beautiful to watch, and I'd recommend any of your listeners to Google the word murmuration video starling and see what comes up because it's beautiful. And when you see that. You know, they're doing essentially what any good group does, right? You know, when Pixar makes a movie, it's it's a bunch of people connected, moving through a problem together, communicating, just like those birds. When Navy SEAL Team 6 does a mission, it's a bunch of people connected, exchanging information, moving through a landscape, moving in a direction, solving a problem. Um, it's true of any group. It's not like there's one bird saying, okay, everybody fly left. Okay, now everybody fly to the right. They're figuring out together in a smart way. And, and that's modern life. I mean, that's modern business. Um, there was a time where, you know, in our parents and beyond generation, 
where you could succeed. All you needed to do was build a good system and then execute on that system. But the world has changed. And so these three qualities of connection, right? Number one, being connected, that flock of birds, picture the connection that they have there, picture the connection of your group as it moves through, through time and space, solving problems together. So connection is the first, and we do that through safety. Signals of safety create human connection. Secondly, exchanging information is super important, accurate information. Picture that flock of birds, they're exchanging really clear information as they fly, right? Everybody needs to know where everybody is. Well, the way humans do that is through vulnerability. We share risk, we open up, we tell the truth, we don't hide information from each other, we share information by being vulnerable together. So that's how information gets changed. That's the second signal, vulnerability. And the third signal, you have to have a direction, right? I mean, the flock is trying to get to a nest or to evade a hawk or something, and every business, every team is trying to get to a goal line, is trying to get better, is trying to get to some goal. And the way we establish direction and goal is through purpose. We establish a super clear purpose that provides like a, like a true north that you can orient to. So those three signals, and they're like, they're not, they're functional behaviors. I mean, you know, we can think of them as signals, but, but they really function as, as these behaviors that allow the whole body of the group, all of the parts and pieces of the group to connect, to solve problems and exchange information in a smart way and to navigate toward a solution. So, so the book, I sort of broke it down into functions like, Connection, exchanging information, and direction, which turns into safety, building safety, sharing vulnerability, and establishing purpose. In terms of the safety, I found the examples in which you were given for Pixar, these were just blowing my mind in terms of the specific examples, like sitting in the fifth row and having the, the everyone gets the same introduction. So what was it specifically that you found about Pixar, which was, what is it that Pixar are really doing right with this, with that safety element? You know, there's, a, there's sort of a, something called critical moments theory um, in psychology where you, you sort of look at, you know, we are built to decide whether we're in or out of a group in the first few minutes that we, first few seconds, you enter a room, you enter a group, and you are keenly looking for one simple question, do I belong here? Do I share a future with these people? Are we going to work together? Do they care about me? And that gets delivered through belonging cues. And that's why groups like Pixar are so incredibly skilled at delivering that signal very early on in the relationship. You know, in a lot of big time businesses like that, especially in movie studios, you know, you show up and, and you've, got a, you've got a job and here's your desk and let's go to work. And in Pixar, they make it very, very special. You, everyone who's hired on a, on, in a new class, and that includes the baristas, that includes the engineers, that includes the coders, that includes the directors, that includes the voice actors, everybody, comes in and sits in the fifth row of their auditorium. And the head of the company gets up and says a couple sentences. He's a very good communicator. And this is, it's just so perfect. He sends a, an incredible cue, incredible signal. He says, whatever you were doing before, you're a movie maker now. We need you to make our movies better. It's two sentences. And it's incredibly powerful. We need you. Whatever you were doing before, you're a movie maker now. The barista is hearing this. Everybody's hearing this. And actually, one of the sort of stories that didn't quite get in the book, but one of the stories was that there was a barista who was hired at Pixar who 
went on to become uh, a very high executive on the creative side, like a head of development or something like that. Um, so that idea that anybody who walks in these doors um, is making us better. And, and it's not just that signal, though. It's every signal that's sent through the course of a day. Um, you know, every day they have a meeting and everybody gets a chance to look at footage that they built the day before and give feedback on it. Everybody. And they call it plussing. In other places, they would call it giving notes. Um, and here they call it plussing because you're improving it. And I remember talking to a, like a software engineer who had had some suggestions. He had spoken up and he had made a suggestion about the medals that the Boy Scout wears in the movie Up. So, And they had taken those suggestions. He had some kind of funny thing to add like, oh, it would be funny if you wore this type of medal. And um, they, they listened to him. And now this guy looks at that movie and there's his idea up on there on the screen. So it's not just lip service of saying, hey, welcome, we love you, we need you to make us better. It's that signal combined with a ton of other behaviors that support that. Um, so it's a steady stream of belonging cues. It's not just something you get once. It's like a candle that has to be relit all the time because that's the way our brains are built. We're always looking to see, do we belong? Do we still belong? Do we still belong? Um, that's just how our brain is, has evolved here in that line of we need you and that that really is that is goosebump inducing that you know that is really really powerful so on that note what are some of the other ways in which we could induce those belonging cues you know um there's one real simple one with sort of facial expression which is something we don't spend a ton of time thinking about a navy seals commander told this to me he said look your face is like a door it's got two settings. Um, it can be closed, and we know what that looks like. It's sort of a you know eyebrows down, intense inward gaze, um, or it can be open. Uh, that muscle on top of your eyebrows is called your frontalis, and it's probably the most important muscle of your body. You know, it's in, when it comes to connecting and sending a signal of engagement, energy, enthusiasm, interest. Um, when we think about the leaders, think about the faces of leaders you admire, and and see what they're doing with their eyes. Um, something as simple as that. You know, ends up, and that's that's kind of the theme of a lot of these um, actions that that I spotlight in the book. They're small, right? They're small things that end up sending a very big signal. Another one is an email. It's called the two line email. It's an idea from Laszlo Bach, who works at Google. You send two lines. The first line is you send an email to your team, to everybody you work with. The first line is, "Hey, would you tell me one thing you want me to keep doing?" And the second line is. Would you tell me one thing you'd like me to stop doing? And it's a really, really small email with a very, very big signal in it. Um, and another signal that I've that I've seen used is when the leaders pick up trash and do dishes and simply police the area where the where the team works. It sends a really basic signal that sort of eliminates the power differential when the when the boss is without being kind of show offy about it. Um, is is leaning down to, to tidy something up um, that really sends a signal of care um, that is that is incredibly powerful. Um, so you know all of these places are sending almost like a radio station these sort of steady pulses of really clear belonging cues that just send a signal like I see you, I care, we share a future. I wonder could you take this maybe a level deeper? I, I wonder is this something which the same principle could be applied on maybe a more 
personal level like is this something which you've taken this and maybe applied to say your own marriage oh totally it's all the same stuff i mean you know and 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 as someone you know i was talking to a psychologist about this one time and he actually brought that marriage comparison in he said yeah you know with belonging like you can um you know you 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 should tell your your spouse that you love them all the time right if if you've you know, which, which in some ways doesn't make any sense. Like, oh, they should know that, right? They should know that. And yet you do because it's an important behavioral signal of your, of your connection. And sort of all our groups sort of need their cups filled um, on a regular basis. It's just uh, – it's more a reflection of sort of the way our brains are built. But yeah, for sure, after learning all, all this stuff um, about you know, what makes for good chemistry – you know, that chemistry applies to parents and kids. It applies to brothers. It applies to spouses. It applies to, to neighborhoods. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's the oldest language there is. And so it's good to learn how to speak it. Yeah, this, this is a topic which is of real fascination to me. And, and my first introduction to this and, and a great tip I had was from Brene Brown. She gives the example of, for, for parent in any way, that a lot of typical parents they may see their kids after a long day and if they've come in with mud all over them or they got some sauce or, or some some something tipped down their you know down their white top that the parent will typically mention that first instead of greeting them but Brene says that that one of the things in which we should do is to greet first with a warm and open expression which i imagine triggers that belonging cue which you mentioned and then to maybe comment on something is that an example you'd agree with completely 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 100 percent. you know we're just we're just that's it it's the oldest language and those are the nouns and the verbs you know yeah amazing so one of the things in which Brene uh studies is vulnerability and going through the book and looking at these uh the the three trigger signals which you talk about one of the biggest paradoxes that I found in the book is the Navy uh, SEAL Team 6. To me, when I think of the synonyms involved, I think of a group of elite alpha males, which mm-hmm. is not something which would necessarily be associated in any way with vulnerability. Right. But but the examples which you gave... It's, it, you know, it comes across in the book that these are the ultimate example of vulnerability. So I wonder what are the lessons which can be learned from the Navy SEALs in particular with vulnerability? Yeah, they're the best at it, really. Um, you know, and and just sort of by way of context, you know, there's a lot of special forces um, groups in, in the American military, just as there are in the British military. But there are certain groups that get chosen over and over again for the hardest missions, um, and that that the Navy SEALs are the case in America. And the reason that is that they they simply function more closely. They function; they're more cohesive. They they can communicate faster. They can attack more complicated problems than the other than the other groups. And that's rooted in what's called an AAR after action review, and rooted moreover in this relentless um, sort of group behaviors that they do all through training. Um, there's a saying that two is one and one is none. Um, you're continually paired and, and with other, with, with your raft group or with a buddy always in seal training. And they will actually allow people to 
pass, um, even though they might not hit the right marker for a run, if that person has gone back to help others. So they're continually prioritizing and valuing that sort of selfless uh, team team behavior. But the AAR is where it really comes to light because they hap- that happens after action review happens right after they get off the helicopter after a, after a, a training run after a, a, a mission and they circle up and they start having the hardest conversation about what went wrong and about what went right and about what they're going to do differently next time and it's incredibly hard to do anybody who's ever done something hard with a team to sort of immediately right afterwards turn around and look yourself look at yourself honestly and look at your teammates honestly critique them critique yourself critique each other and it's intense and it's very very painful um, to do but it is by far the most powerful thing that they do and the reason that it is powerful is that it creates two things it creates human connection when you're vulnerable together it's called a vulnerability loop when you're vulnerable together that is the time where trust is built we normally think that we have to trust in order to be vulnerable, but we've actually got it exactly backwards. In a vulnerability loop, the moment of vulnerability is what builds trust. And if you reflect on your own life, on moments where you were really vulnerable with someone, how did you feel after? How connected did you feel with that person? Vulnerability doesn't come after trust, it comes before, and the SEALs understand that. So it builds that human connection. And the second thing it does is it builds a shared mental model. If you're doing really complicated stuff, like most groups are, most groups in this day, whether you're coding, whether you're selling, or whether you're building a product, or whether you're providing a service, it's it's not simple, like hard stuff. They're building a shared mental model of what's happening. Immediately after something happens, they come back, and they talk about it, and they get common language and common mental models to explain how things went that they then use going forward. So you're creating kind of this emotional continuity between the two and this sort of cognitive continuity where they are seeing the world through the same eyes. That helps them on the next mission. So that idea of vulnerability, vulnerability in kind of this emotional, like heartfelt way, and there is definitely a huge emotional component, but there's also this huge cognitive component. Um, it, It helps you be smarter, and that's where it really helps a group like the SEALs. When you talk about vulnerability like that, I think that everybody listening right now, they're having all these aha moments. And and I know for me, when, when I hear that, I'm thinking to myself, that level of, of honesty of, oh man, I fucked this up. This is what I did wrong. This is, you know, and then to be open honest with yourself and then to others, that's so difficult to do. How can we cultivate that? How can we cultivate that level of, of honesty? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the person who's most important to help people cultivate it is the leader. Um, as Dave Cooper, Dave Cooper was a SEAL that I spent a lot of time with. He trained the group that got bin Laden. He trained the troops that, that captured Osama bin Laden. He was sort of their coach. And um, the way he put it was, the four most important words that a leader can say are, I screwed that And the thinking behind that and the reality behind that is that when a leader says that, it gives permission to everybody else. The reason we don't want to take a risk is we don't feel like it's safe. We feel like it's going to reflect on our reputation and our future when we admit weakness. That's why groups have such a hard time doing it. So it's up to the leader and the leaders to establish that norm very early on and send that signal. Hey, I don't have all the answers. I need need to hear from you guys. And there's a million different ways to signal that vulnerability. And and a lot of good ways to signal it are around learning. Leaders 
who signal their own learning, who say, hey, teach me how to do that. Tell me, how do you guys, what, what happened out there? Um, teach me, tell me. Really, really, that, that level of curiosity and humility um, you know, isn't really an option. It's a necessity if you want to send that signal of vulnerability because that's, that's how the group is. We're not going to do it unless we get sort of permission, unless it gets normalized, and the leader is the best way to normalize it. If you've got a leader who does that, like Dave Cooper, who's continually saying, hey, I don't know. Tell me. I don't know how this tell – me, tell me what would be better. What did you see out there? What did you notice? What do you think we should do? Um, a leader like that versus a leader who tries to take the more conventional authoritarian, um, you know, oh, give me a report and I'll tell you what to do sort of a thing. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's not that being authoritarian is wrong. It's just that it's a terrible fit for most problems that we face where knowledge is distributed, where com- problems are complex and unfolding. Um, you have to build those relationships so everybody can share back to the center, look at the problem, look at themselves, and navigate together. Another example, which which I know which you talk about in terms of this uh, level of vulnerability is in terms of delivering bad news, <laughs> which I, I, I love this concept. So what is that idea and how is it beneficial? I saw a few places do this. It was deliver bad news in person, never give a no over email. Um, and the reason that that's a sort of a rule in a lot of places is that that moment of no is a real moment of tension where things can go either way, where our primeval brains can decide, no, oh, this place isn't for me. I'm going to check out. These people are out to get me. That All that stuff is a completely natural response to a no. And so doing it in person is a way of having that vulnerable moment happen in a safer environment. Um, there's there's some, some research that's been done around requests that's kind of fascinating. Uh, and what they found was that, you know, we're always giving requests in today's day and age, right? And we have a choice. We can either send it digitally or we can do it in person. And the study showed that you're 34 more times likely to get a yes if you ask in person. You know, being together face-to-face is the original killer app. It's, it's what... It's what we were sort of originally designed for. And so you get so much more information face-to-face. You can communicate so much more about what you want and where you are and what it's for that it's, it's almost, you know, it's, it's almost, it's a no-brainer that if you have a request, you should, you should seek ways to do that face-to-face. And in a larger way, if you have a team, even in this, this world where everyone's working remotely, to really do all you can to sort of prioritize FaceTime. So much really comes down to leadership just how important that leadership can be much of a of a knock-on effect it really can have and how it can essentially make or break in so many different cases and it, it seems crazy to me as you mentioned earlier that that developing that it seem as is seen as you know as a soft skill is isn't that you know doesn't that seem strange it is. I mean, you know, it's it's like people always, you know, they talk about chemistry, you know, personal chemistry and things like that. Well, down, it's just like with real chemistry. Like, there's an actual hard thing there. It's not. It's not just magic and smoke and mirrors. Um, not to say there's a lot of good ways to be a good leader. You know, this idea that there's one way to be a good leader is is, is ridiculous. You've got people like Richard Branson. You've got people like Warren Buffett. You've got people who are they couldn't be more different. And they're both effective leaders for their for their work, um, and so I think it's interesting to look at the, the the effect of the leader. It's also really interesting to look at the effect of what it means to be a great teammate. I think 
to me, that's that's equally fascinating that that is a skill set that is undervalued and more and more important as we move into this world where we're trying to solve complicated problems with distributed teams that are autonomous that are trying to do the next smart thing in a changing landscape. Like that's really hard to do. And to do that, you need to be a good teammate. And and I think the skills of being a good teammate are just as important as the skills of being a good leader. And they are kind of rooted in this grammar of cultural communication. How do you communicate that you're, you you care? How do you communicate that, that you're sharing? How do you communicate how do you have behaviors where you're moving purposefully in a certain direction? Mm. So we've just looked at vulnerability. At the beginning, we delved quite deeply, I thought, into safety. The last one, which you talk about in the book, is that purpose. You know, it's that, that, that storyline for the organization. What, what I, I noticed in, in the book was that you give a lot of examples of these small but useful catchphrases that that a lot of these organizations used i know that the san antonio spurs they said i think it was pound the rock and i think it was zappos just off the top of my head it was something like uh create fun and weirdness or something along those lines and i you know when i was hearing this i thought to myself that repeated over enough times that they become particularly powerful and um, when, when I thought about it this is actually something which my my business partner here Lewis and I we had done is that we heard from John Gordon when we interviewed him he said think of one word he said and, and all throughout the year he said whenever you're feeling down he said I want you to tell yourself that one word so we said and we sat down and we said let's make our word opportunity so whenever we were struggling or there's you know some troubles going, we'd always just tell ourselves opportunity, opportunity. And when That's... I read your book, it sort of like linked things together. So how powerful could those storylines be that we cultivate? Yeah, no, I mean you know stories really, really are stories and, and mantras as as you were talking about are I think incredibly powerful. You know, the human, you know, we're just very distractible organisms, right? I mean, we, we pay attention to what's around us. We're built to do that. And, and good groups sort of, you know, they don't let purpose just be in somebody's heart or, or in somebody's, you know, gut. Um, what they do is they build out a windshield, you know, they, they build out a windshield of those kind of really often corny, uh, but really clear mantras that express the priorities, the behavioral priorities they want to see. Um, the mental reflexes they want to see when there's a problem that work the best. So it's, it's kind of like building a map, you know, you want to, you know, where true North is, what's, what, what do you really want to create? And, and there was a, a good example of this was Danny Meyer. He's a restaurant founder that has about 22 restaurants along with a, a giant chain called Shake Shack. Um, and early on in his, in his career, he opened one restaurant and it was quite successful. He opened a second and they both started to fail because he was the culture. When he wasn't around, people didn't know what to do. When he was in the room, they knew exactly what to do. So that was when he closed them both and did a retreat and went away and started building out a mantra map, um, a really clear set of catchphrases that capture what he wants to achieve and how he wants to achieve it. And the, uh, the true north on that was to create raves. That was their idea, to create raves. 
Um, not to serve good food. They could have said that. Not to make money. They could have said that. Nope. Their true north is create raves, which really frames your thinking. How can I create a rave? If you're a waiter there, if you're a maitre d', if you're a wine steward, if you're a busboy, if you're a, a dishwasher, how can we create raves? It orients your thinking. Um, and then he started building out how to do that. All these little catchphrases, which are very cheesy, loving problems, the excellence reflex, athletic hospitality, all of these little sort of phrases that function almost like they, a lot of them have to do with problems and they define how he wants people to, to respond to problems. And there was a time where uh, Danny and I were having breakfast in one of his restaurants and over in the corner we hear this big crash and a waiter had dropped a, a tray of glasses and Danny Meyer stops talking to me and starts looking in the corner and, and I say, what are you looking for? And he says, well, one of two things is about to happen. Either they're gonna come together and clean up this mess and their energy level in this room is going to go up or there's going to be some blame. There's going to be some anger and the energy level in the room is going to drop. And it was just a genius moment where I could see his cultural map, his windshield that he had built sort of come to life. Um, the phrase loving problems, the phrase athletic hospitality, the excellence reflex. It's, it's totally corny and it's absolute genius. He lays out and creating rays. How can we create rays? That the energy in the room, as it happened, it did go up. Uh, the culture in the room was strong. It was, a, it was a great little litmus test of how that works. And so as a leader, as a starting, you know, if your, your listeners are starting their own company, that idea of building out with a lot of precision um, a, a really clear map of, of where you want to go and how you want to get there uh, and the cornier the better. It can be a really fun kind of, uh, you know, vulnerable, I guess, if you bring everybody together to sort of build that out, it can be a, it can be a really cool process to build your own mantra map. So what would the process look like for this? Would it be a case of identifying value by value, you know, identifying those priorities? Would that be the first step? That's one way. I mean, you can just sort of take this an example I have in the book of Myers where I sort of write it all down. And what you can do is just show people that and say, what's our version of this? Break into groups, you know, four or five person groups. Everybody creates their catchphrases. Which one of these should be true north for us? Which, which, what's our, what are we all about? And they kind of would go into two buckets. You'd have the bucket of like, okay, what is, what's true north for us? What are, what do we try to do above all else? What is our purpose? What is our purpose in life? Why are we here? That would be one. Um, and then the others would be that question of like, all right, how are we going to get there? You know, what's, what are the moves we want to have um, in our arsenal? What, what do we want to do when there's a problem? How do we want people to react? And in a lot of groups, what you'll find is that those phrases already kind of exist. Like people have said them um, and people use them. And so it can be kind of fun to surface those ideas and those, uh, and those catchphrases. And, you know, you do it every once in a while. Things change. Things move. It can be uh, it can be a fun thing to redo, you know, kind of on an annual basis. And the misconception that people have about purpose is that they think, oh, we just need to build one purpose statement and then we'll be done. And that's not true. Um, you know, the language of a group is ideally rich and deep and sort of the more you have, the better and the more that come from the ground up and that kind of surface organically, they don't get pushed top down. They get surfaced from below. And so the more you can engage people in that process of building out, all right, how do we want to talk about the problems we have? Let's name those problems that we have over and over again. Let's name that kind of problem. In Danny Meyer, they had a problem of people having a bad attitude because for some reason, like they had a bad reaction to 
you know, maybe a snobby customer. And Danny Meyer named that. He calls it skunking. Skunking, no skunking, right? Name the non-negotiable things that you want to – even the uh, the All Blacks, uh, the New Zealand's rugby team, their their mantra is no dickheads. No dickheads. We're going to say it. We don't. If you're a dickhead, we don't want you on the team. Are you acting like a dickhead? That's not good. So being really explicit about what you really crave and what you want to have and being very explicit about what you absolutely will not accept. I love that so much. And to me, I think that this would be particularly apt to personal relationships things like actually romantic relationships is this something which you would have applied to say perhaps your marriage i i it would i I don't know that's kind of interesting no dickheads my wife would probably agree with that (laughs) you know it's funny stuff like that does happen in families you know there are little phrases that that come up you know my my dad always used to say make good things happen um and then i think in any family it's sort of natural to uh to do that and in a way that's kind of the role of the of each generation to sort of take care of those little sayings and phrases and and pass them on to the next generation what's the next project for for, for dan um I'm, I'm doing a follow-up to the to the te- to the culture code which is going to be called the culture playbook uh, and i just sent a note to my editor on a we just picked a due date for that um and uh, so that'll be coming out maybe in a it'll be more than a year i think from now um, and then I want to do, uh, I'm not sure what the next book is after that. I have to have to figure that out. Are there any topics in particular, which really captivate your attention? Um, I think the power of story is always interesting. I think that's, I think that's one that I'm definitely going to continue to explore There's something going on there. And I don't know what it is, but it would be fun to find out. It's amazing. And I look forward to reading them. So just to wrap up what has been an amazing conversation, I've just got four Last non-specific questions it shouldn't take too long uh, that we ask all of our guests. So, based on your work, Dan, and everything which you've learned, is there a, an actionable challenge which you have for us and for our audience of perhaps maybe one, two, three things that we could take from your work and we could apply them today? Actionable challenge that you could apply today from my work. Um, I, I guess you know uh, one might be to resist when next time someone asks you a question, resist the temptation to answer them. You know we have a we have a very strong temptation to want to help and want to answer and want to provide value. Instead, just use the three words: "Tell me more." The question they're bringing probably isn't the real question, um, and surfacing what's really going on underneath can be a, a good way to uh, to to do that. Another one might be um, to ask people you work with, "Hey, if you could change one thing about what we do here, how we work here, what would it be?" Yeah, that's another another way to kind of open up a conversation around change um, and create a bit of a, a bit of a vulnerability loop. Um, and let's see, uh, I guess the third one would be to sort of change where you sit. Uh, if there's, um, you know, it's easy to get into a, into a groove. One of the most powerful ways to sort of change, uh, your, sort of the culture around you is to move. Um, and so to, you know, get a coffee with somebody you, you haven't lately or make a habit of, of creating small groups, maybe around, around lunch, um, where you kind of keep colliding with, uh, with new people. I love those. So, Dan, you were obviously a, you know, a fantastic author yourself. You're fast becoming one of my favorite authors for certain. 
So I just wonder what books in particular have impacted your life, uh, Dan? Well, I, I uh, you know, I, I read um, I read Harriet the Spy when I was very small, which was just a tremendous book on the power of power of language. Um, uh, I read a book. Um, I guess you know. One of the ones that I read as I was sort of young, college age, was a book called The Right Stuff about the U.S. space program and written by a man named Tom Wolfe, who's a, a genius uh, nonfiction writer. And it really opened me up to the power of, of telling real stories, uh, telling, telling, telling nonfiction, the power of, of smart nonfiction, literary nonfiction that kind of brings the world into, into fresh light and fresh form. Um, that was that was the right stuff. Would be the book that did that for me. And this is quite a, a, an interesting question. We always love the the responses to this one. In your life, are there any societal room, any societal rules, societal norms, or societal conventions that you love to break? Huh. I guess there's a ton of them. Um, you know, uh, I grew up in Alaska, and so there's, you know, that, that, that Alaska itself is a, is a giant break of convention. If, if convention breaking was a state, it would be Alaska. And so, um, throughout uh, my life, down in the in the lower 48, as we call it, uh, the lower 48 states, um, they're just. I think that's the main advantage of, of being from Alaska, being an outsider, not necessarily, um, seeing, um, you know, appreciating or obeying the sort of formality of, uh, of some, some places here. So yeah, I, I do like, I do like kind of not paying attention to, uh, to formality and status. Um, and I guess I've been doing that for a long time. My last question for you today, Dan, to wrap up what's been a great and very actionable conversation is if you could hypothetically give a short but impactful message to the world in a situation in which every person is tuned into the same frequency what would daniel coyle's message to the world be oh man i don't have any uh <clears throat> i don't have any deep wisdom on that one uh but I guess I would just say what, what my parents said to me a lot, which was make good things happen. Dan, where can our audience, our Freedom Pack family, where can they connect with you? I have a, the website is danielcoil.com. And uh, yeah, that would be a good place to start. That's amazing. Dan, you know, man, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Thank you so much for, for the work in which you do. I know your work has personally impacted me a lot. So, you know, man, I, I can't thank you enough. And, and it was so great to connect and to speak with you. Same here. I really enjoyed it. And uh, congrats on the show. And I hope our paths cross again, hopefully in person.